Hate is defined as an intense or passionate dislike. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode one of Over the Top, a Great War podcast. For the first couple episodes, I'll be talking about the events that caused world leaders to make irrational decisions that led to the outbreak of World War I. The events were fueled by societal and cultural differences, which led to hate. I came across an online article from psychologytoday.com posted back in March of 2017 regarding what creates hate. A paragraph was written by Sylvia Duchovici, the founder and president of the Critical Therapy Center, and the paragraph is in regards to societal and cultural factors of why we hate. She says that the answer to why we hate lies not only in our psychological makeup and family history, but also in our cultural and political history. She said, quote, We live in a war culture that promotes violence, in which competition is a way of life. We fear connecting because it requires us to reveal something about ourselves. We are taught to hate the enemy, meaning anyone different than us, which leaves little room for vulnerability and an exploration of hate through empathic discourse and understanding. In our current society, one is more ready to fight than to resolve conflict. Peace is seldom the option. Think of the events that led up to the Great War like a campfire. Pretend you have a small fire used to cook some food, keep you warm, maybe roast some marshmallows or something. Basically, a a fire that can be easily controlled. And then the next thing you know, multiple jackasses, one after the other, come out of the wood line with gas cans, and they start dumping gas on the fire. That campfire that was under control can't be contained anymore. The whole forest erupts in flames. And it looked as though Russia was handing out the gas cans. The war sprang to life in August of 1914, but the first seed of hate was planted on the early morning of June 11, 1903, at the Royal Palace in Belgrade, where the King of Serbia, Alexander Obrenovic, and his wife, Queen Draga, were residing. But before I get into the events of that dark morning, let me first give you a little background on Alexander. Born in 1876, son of Milan Obrenovic and Natalie of Serbia, oh, by the way, if I didn't do so in my intro episode, let me do so now. I'm going to butcher some names throughout this podcast and most of the podcasts in the future, and I apologize for this. Alexander's father had abdicated in 1889, which means he renounced the throne, naming his, his son the new king with a regency council due to his age. Most children raised in an aristocratic family were raised to be selfish, so it shouldn't be a shocker this turd was going to make some decisions for all of Serbia in his own favor. In 1893, Alexander, just a teenager at the time, dismissed the Regency Council and assumed full control of the government. Alexander's mother, Natalie, came from a good family in Russia. Her father was a respected colonel in the Russian army. She married her second cousin, Milan, in 1875. They had two sons, but the younger died a few days after birth. Milan wasn't a faithful husband. He had multiple affairs which caused a crack in their marriage, but what really led to their divorce was political differences. Russia and Austria were enemies. Milan was pro-Austrian, a friend to the Habsburg Empire, and Natalie was naturally pro-Russian, and this caused much tension between the two. I think all kings back then had affairs. I think Natalie could have lived with this if it was just that, 
but the constant hatred towards Russia, Russia caused her to throw in the towel on the marriage. They divorced and Milan abdicated. Things at one point seemed to be going the way Alexander had wanted them to, in his full control. In 1897, Milan, who was living abroad, was brought back to Serbia to be commander of the Serbian armed forces. Because the king was pro-Austrian, he threw out anyone who was pro-Russian from the government. I'll just assume his mother wasn't too pleased about this. When people began to voice their opposition to this decision, the king restricted the people's freedom of speech. He basically morphed into a dictator. This sparked a rise in radical groups throughout Serbia, and at one point radicals attempted to take Milan's life. The king had been warned of assassination plots against him and his family a number of times. After an unsuccessful attempt on his father's life, Alexander brought on more repressive measures to the people. In 1900, the king's popularity took a wrong turn even with his family when he announced his engagement to Draga Messine, a widow and former maiden to his mother who was 12 years older than him. To most of us today, marrying an older woman, or vice versa, isn't that big of a deal. It's normal. But back then, for a king to marry a widow and her being much older than him wasn't acceptable. At all. Despite the disapproval from his parents, politicians, and the majority of the Serbian people, he went through with the marriage anyway. Lies had already spread through Serbia about Draga. They said she was receiving gifts for sex on numerous occasions and that she was malicious. Milan wrote Alexander a letter expressing his disapproval to marry Draga. Part of it said, quote, I shall be the first to cheer the government which shall drive you from the country after such a folly on your part, end quote. Those are harsh words to receive from your dad, and their relationship at this point was done. Many historians today believe all the negative rumors about Draga weren't even true. See, Draga became a maiden to Milan's ex-wife, Natalie, after they divorced. She wouldn't have gotten that job if these rumors were true. Scandalous women didn't make their way up the ladder working for royals. Draga, in fact, was a well-educated woman, spoke four languages, and Natalie actually recognized her for being a smart, independent widow who could think for herself. I'm sure Draga was a jaded woman at this point in her life. She did have a rough past with men. Her first husband, and probably her first love, died early. Her second husband, 12 years older than she was, drank himself to death. I'm sure he was abusive and the marriage wasn't done out of love. I think today we would refer to Draga as a tough woman who had been through a lot of shit. However, this didn't mean Natalie approved of her becoming Alexander's wife. In fact, she was very much against it. By 1903, Alexander and his wife had managed to turn just about all of Serbia against them. Someone from the inside leaked news that they faked a pregnancy because they needed an heir to the throne. This was never confirmed true or false and could have been another rumor. After the relationship with his father went sour, Milan was expelled from Serbia, living under constant surveillance preventing him from ever returning. He started getting rid of his father's supporters and those who spoke badly about him and his queen. He even had his own mother removed from Serbia after she had bad things to say about them. He was throwing people out of the country, throwing fits and tantrums just to get his way, like some spoiled little brat. He started throwing these ridiculous lavish parties in honor of his wife, and the government was, was funding that bill. He even started naming schools and villages after her. It gets nuttier. In March of 1903, in the middle of the night, he suspends the Constitution, then reinstates it just 45 minutes later with his own set of laws. After he expelled his father, he scaled back on the military budget. Officers stopped receiving pay, except 
those who were considered loyal supporters. But the straw that broke the camel's back, as if everything up to this point hadn't been enough, came when word got around the king was intending to make one of Draga's brothers the heir to the throne. A certain group of individuals decided they weren't going to let this happen. Action needed to be taken. 28 Serbian army officers under the leadership of Dragutin Dimitrovic, also known as Apis, stepped up to the plate. The word Apis comes from an ancient Egyptian word which translates to sacred bull. Apis, a physically strong man by nature and powerful with his words, he could stay calm under pressure and be fearful when needed. He had a lot of hatred built up towards the queen. He claimed it was Draga who was influencing the king's bad decisions that was ruining Serbia. It became his personal mission to see her go down. Or was this the real reason he felt she needed to go? Apis had strong ties with Russia, and Apis having so much respect among all the ranks in the army, could this have made him a perfect ally for Russia? The more allies Russia had, the more powerhouse they would become. And at this time, Germany was the powerhouse. It's also claimed that Apis and the officers were on the Russian payroll. It really sounds like some plot out of a mafia movie. The plan of action was to eliminate the king and restore the government, who would one day push for the unification of all Slavic nations under one rule. In the early morning of June 11, 1903, the operation to eliminate the king was a go. The culprits stormed through the front gate of the royal palace and a short gunfight erupted between the guards and the assassins. Residents in Belgrade reporting hearing the shots early in the morning. Shots rang out between both sides and the guards to the palace were quickly overrun and apprehended. But in the midst of the short battle, Apis was shot three times. Unconscious, close to bleeding out, he was rushed off for medical aid, barely escaping death. This tough son of a bitch, his time and place to die wasn't that morning. The officers made their way to the two large heavy wooden doors leading to the inside of the palace. They blew the doors down with dynamite and stormed inside. The power was cut from the palace and the assassins with candle in one hand and gun in the other searched room by room for the king and queen. A few hours went by searching for the couple while murdering those who were loyal to the king. The assassins finally found the trembling couple hiding in a small closet next to their room. After some false persuasion saying they wouldn't be killed, they finally came out of the closet and were immediately shot down. But gunning them down wasn't enough. They were stripped of their clothes, mutilated, and then thrown over the balcony like trash into the royal garden. And this wasn't the only murder scene that morning. The officers had the queen's brothers rounded up. They too were murdered. Assassins stabbed both of them to death while hurling insults and spitting on them. There's a few versions how this assassination went down. Some say the king was shot in the head after coming out of the closet, then Draga immediately following. Some say they were stabbed to death in the closet, Others say they were gunned down. There is even reports about the king still being alive when they went to throw him over the balcony. They said his hand clenched the railing of the balcony and he wouldn't let go, so an assassin hacked it off. Regardless of which version you choose to believe, facts are facts. And the solid facts we know from that morning are the following. The 28-man team of assassins was headed by Apis, which he was shot three times at the front gate. The king and queen clearly were murdered. They were stripped of their clothes, the bodies did have signs of mutilation, and both were tossed over the balcony. Murder is murder, and because there was so much hate in that room, I believe the assassins didn't kill them quick. They wanted to make a statement. I believe there was pain and suffering involved, and the assassins had no intentions of giving the king and queen a quick death. 
Quick deaths are for the respected. Slow, agonizing death are for those who aren't. That morning, news of the murder made its way through Belgrade. People took to the streets with joy, celebrating the end of the Obrenovic dynasty and the king's tyrannical rule. Peter Karadjorcevic, a pro-Russian anti-Austrian, was called back from exile and named the new king of Serbia. The Obrenovic and Karadjorcevic clans had always been rivals. This, too, had come to an end. The new king had been informed of the assassination plans beforehand, and after taking the throne, he brought on no punishment to the assassins. In fact, the, conspir the conspirators were hailed as saviors of the fatherland. Apis was promoted to the chief of Serbian intelligence who ran the military. Although most of the Serbian population seemed happy about the sudden change in rule, some people didn't think it was handled with any form of decency. Sir George Bonham, the British Prime Minister, wrote a dispatch to London the evening of the murders, saying in regards to the people celebrating in the street, quote, there was an entire absence of decent regret, end quote. The thought about a group of radicals murdering a king and queen, then taking over the government, was very disturbing to some people. If they were capable of murdering their own, what else would they be capable of? How far could their power stretch? By 1905, some of the European great powers started boycotting government functions in Belgrade. And it's important to note, after Peter took over the Serbian throne, ties with Russia were sewn back together. And even more importantly, Russia still had strong ties with Apis, who controlled the Serbian army. The culprits who assassinated Alexander were like a pack of wolves. They got a taste for blood and weren't about to stop there. In October of 1908, Pandora's box was opened up for Europe when Austria annexed Bosnia and Herzegovina, making them provinces of the Habsburg Empire. Annexation means to add to one's own territory by appropriation. After the Young Turk Rebellion broke out in Constantinople, which is now called Istanbul, Rumors started to spread that the Ottoman Empire was planning to take back Bosnia and Herzegovina, which they considered their lost provinces. Serbian nationalists had a dream to unite all Slav nations under one rule. Bosnia, Herzegovina, Slovenia, Croatia, Macedonia, and Montenegro. Austria-Hungary decided they weren't going to let this happen. They wanted to show dominance in the Balkans, so they took the bull by the horns and went through with the annex. I think now is a good time to introduce the Habsburgs, the monarchy of Austria-Hungary. Franz Joseph was the king of Austria-Hungary. He held his title from 1830 up until his death in 1916. He was the longest reigning emperor in Austria-Hungary and the third longest reigning monarch in Europe. Throughout his rule, he went by many names. For shits and giggles, I'll name off a few. The emperor of Austria, the apostolic king of Hungary, the king of Bohemia, the Duke of Tuscany, Grand Prince of Transylvania, Lord of Trieste, the Kaiser, and more. But I'll stop at that. The Kaiser was a crusty old conservative, dedicated to the throne kind of man. I say crusty because he was old, weathered, and set in his ways. Crusty. In his 80s, he would still wake up at dawn, kneel for his prayers, and then work up until the evening. He loved hunting and the outdoors, but he also feared change and unwelcomed the quickly changing world that surrounded him. He was known to have a temper, which isn't unusual for a monarch to have. Yet he had a gentle side, which is mostly what he displayed to his people. He married a beautiful woman named Elizabeth of Bavaria. However, she left him after becoming infected with venereal disease. Feeling ashamed and disrespected by her husband, she became absent in his life. Empress Elizabeth of Austria was murdered on the streets of Geneva by an Italian anarchist in 1898, whose original target had been somebody else. 
but because his original plans had failed, he settled with killing Elizabeth instead. However, before she got VD, her and the Kaiser did produce a son and heir named Rudolph. But this kid's life wasn't no fairy tale. Nothing he did or said could ever gain the approval from his constant disapproving father. He rebelled and seemed to always do what his father didn't want him to do, which caused much tension between the two. The Kaiser, being a bit of a control freak, and somehow thinking this would solve all the problems, married his son off to Princess Stephanie, daughter of King Leopold II of Belgium. And a lot of people said Stephanie wasn't the best looking. I don't know. I don't know if I agree with that. I looked up pictures of her. I mean, for the 1800s, yeah, she wasn't beautiful, but she wasn't hideous. Rudolph, however, people said he was a handsome man who loved to charm the ladies, so it wasn't a shocker he had multiple affairs. And just like his papa, he infected his wife with venereal disease, which caused problems in the marriage. The Kaiser didn't trust his rebellious son at all, gave him no real role in the day-to-day operations of the empire. Rudolph was basically hanging, hanging around until his dad died so he could take over the throne. He started living the party life, getting hooked on morphine and mistresses. On January 30th, 1889, at a hunting lodge, in a drugged-out rage, Rudolph killed the woman he was with and then put a bullet through his own brain. This was a major blow to Franz Joseph. Rudolph was his only son and next in line to the throne, and nothing was more important to him than keeping the throne in line. The Kaiser was already living in solitude, but somehow became even more reclusive and depressed with his news. As difficult as it was, after the death of his son, he had to name the next heir to the throne, and that man would be his nephew, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand. The Kaiser didn't care for his nephew one bit, even though Ferdinand, like his uncle, was an avid outdoorsman. In fact, it's claimed Ferdinand had over 250,000 hunting kills. But the Kaiser viewed him as a weak liberal with intentions of welcoming the new world into the empire. The Kaiser became paranoid about the Archduke and his liberal ways. Historians believe it's because Franz Ferdinand was very close with his cousin Rudolph, who again was the exact opposite of his father. Therefore, Ferdinand must be the opposite as well. And Franz Ferdinand, in some weird way, believed the Kaiser blamed him for the death of his son. Which I don't think is true. I believe the Kaiser knew his son was a turd. He just had trouble accepting it. But the Kaiser never lightened up to his nephew. Their relationship was said to be an uncomfortable one. I mean, how awkward would that family dinner be? But no matter how uncomfortable they made each other feel, the Kaiser knew his nephew was the rightful heir to the throne. To make tensions worse, Ferdinand announced a marriage proposal to the love of his life, the Countess Sophie Schotek. The Kaiser became furious and immediately disapproved. He said Sophie didn't qualify to be queen under the family statutes of 1839. She was an educated woman, came from a noble family, but not an equal one, which disqualified her. The king said regarding Ferdinand's love for Sophie, quote, Love makes people lose all sense of dignity, end quote. The Habsburgs were unanimous in their disapproval of the Archduke marrying Sophie and didn't hold back saying it. An elderly Archduke wrote a letter to Franz Ferdinand saying, quote, Try to occupy yourself with serious activities and think carefully on the consequences of the steps you propose to take, because I do not believe that this union will bring you lasting happiness. To see a wife you love disadvantaged will cause you pain, and if things should turn out to be different than you expected, and the domestic happiness you hope for is not to be found, everything will be even more difficult to bear. Each man has painful moments to face, some more difficult than others. Thinking of one's duty helps overcome these. 
and the higher one stands, the less one can allow oneself to be deflected away from fulfilling that duty." End quote. The forbidden romantic scandal of the Archduke and Sophie spread through Vienna, and along with the allies and enemies of the Habsburg Empire. This was celebrity gossip back in 1900. Anyone important in Europe wanted the latest scoop. The Archduke was going mad. He was desperate to marry Sophie. Through his life, he had plenty of women presented to him, approved by the Empire, but he wasn't interested in other women. He found that one person who made him happy and was willing to risk it all to marry her. He drafted a letter and presented it to his uncle, and it said the following, quote, Increasingly weighed down as I am by the agonized situation in which I have found for some time in myself, I again turn to your majesty's paternal heart with the most urgent of pleas to fulfill my deepest and dearest wish, on which depends the whole of my future existence, my happiness, my peace, and my contentment. I can only mention once more that my whim to marry Countess is not a whim, but an outflow of deepest affection for years of trial and suffering. Your Majesty's guarantees for my future life lie in my past conduct, in my constant endeavor to act loyally and never openly or secretly against Your Majesty's will, as many others have tried in their desperate straits. I can and will never marry anyone else, for it repels me and I am unable to tie myself to another without love, making her and myself unhappy, while my heart belongs and will always belong to the Countess. Regarding the belief which your majesty deemed to express that my marriage might harm the monarchy, I humbly beg to point out that this very marriage, by turning me back into a happy man who enjoys his work and devotes his full strength to the general welfare, will enable me to discharge my duties to the monarchy much better than if I live out my life as an unhappy, lonely man devoted by longings. I ask your majesty to believe that I am striving to do my best in, in a difficult situation, but to this end I must have a chance to feel happy, which is why I beg your majesty for this one happiness in my life, for consent to the marriage for which I yearn. I shall strive to give your majesty firm and faithful support, as I am your, your, at your majesty's command. I shall never do anything against your majesty's will, openly or in secret, yet this makes me more confident in my appeal to your majesty's heart to grant me my happiness, end quote. Woo, jeez. The letters between the aristocrats are so formal and drawn out, it gets ridiculous. I had to read them over and over, cutting out some words just to make it flow better. So I apologize if, if this sounds drawn out. I did omit a few words, but this is the way they communicated with each other. I mean, I feel like I need a shot of tequila after reading that. The Kaiser finally gave in and granted permission to the Archduke to marry the Countess. Some say it came from the influence of Elizabeth. Her and the Archduke did have a good relationship, and it's said that he might have gone to his aunt for help. On June 28, 1900, Franz Joseph declared in front of ministers, members of parliament, diplomats, clerics, courtiers, and most importantly, Franz Ferdinand, the following, quote, Inspired by the wish to give my nephew new proof of my special love, I have consented to his marriage with Countess Sophie Schotek. The Countess descends, it is true, from noble lineage, but her family is not one of those that, according to the customs of our house, we regard as equals. As only women from equal houses can be regarded as equal in birth, this marriage must be regarded in the light of morganatic marriage. And the children which, with God's blessing, will spring from it, cannot be given the rights of members of the imperial house. The Archduke will, therefore, 
to make this certain for all time today, take an oath to the effect that he recognizes all of this, that he recognizes his marriage with the Countess Shotek to be a morganatic one, that the consequences are that the marriage cannot be regarded as one between equals and that the children springing from it can never be regarded as rightful children entitled to the rights of members of our house, end quote. And I think I need a second shot. And that was that. Two days later, they were married, not in Vienna, but in a private summer residence. The Kaiser, of course, did not attend. The price was their children would inherit no right to the throne, and Sophie was not allowed to attend any formal government function, nor allowed to be seen with her husband in a public gathering. For years, this is how the Archduke and Sophie lived their lives, and despite all the monarchy BS, they remained happy and had three children. Ferdinand was content with his decision on marrying his love, saying he never once regretted it, and would do it all over again if he had to. I don't think the Archduke was the worst of the worst when it came to royals. Yeah, he was in the monarchy, and yeah, almost all aristocrats by nature are greedy and selfish. But overall, just by his actions on giving up his lineage to marry Sophie, showed he had some sort of heart. In fact, it was the Archduke who disapproved of the annexation of Bosnia and Herzegovina. He knew making a move like this could lead to a war in Europe, and warned the empire about this. The Ottoman Empire was looking to take it back. The Serbs wanted it to unite all the Slavs but it was the Habsburgs who made the first move. There was a dark cloud approaching fast over this part of Europe. This annexation by Austria-Hungary enraged the Serbians. Crowds gathered in the streets calling for war against the empire. Radicals were claiming this annexation must be fought to the death. Nikola Pasik, a major political player in Serbia and a radical himself, declared that if the annexation cannot be reversed, Serbia must prepare for war. They even looked to Russia for military help, but Russia had just suffered a humiliating loss in 1905 in a war with Japan and said its military wasn't ready. And as much as the radicals kicked and screamed, the Serbia government did nothing. Negotiations for the reversal of the annexation completely failed. This fueled the radicals' fire who viewed the failure of negotiations as cowardice. They weren't going to stand for this. Action must be taken because in their eyes, Vienna was gaining the upper hand over Belgrade and the dream of uniting all the Slavs was fading away. After the failure of negotiations, a few very important things happened in Serbia. Number one, the link between Serbia and Russia was strengthened even more with the arrival of a new Russian minister, pro-Serbian Baron Nikolai Hartwig. Russia may have lost the war with Japan, which did expose a weakness in its army and navy, but they did have money, and money is what rebuilds an army, and at the same time can support radicals in its favor. Number two, financial ties with France was reinforced with a huge loan from Paris, with the intentions of expanding them and improving the Serbian army. And lastly, number three, in 1911, a new lethal organization was formed by the name of Unication or Death, also known as the Black Hand. And leading this new radical organization was Dragutin Dimitrovic, Apis, who recruited the rest of the culprits from the 1903 assassination to start it up. It's uncertain to know the exact size of the Black Hand because little was revealed about them, but it's estimated by the end of 1911 there was around 2,500 members. They had already infiltrated the Serbian government after the 1903 assassination, and now they control the borders between Serbia and Bosnia, which gave them access to the annexed areas. The Black Hand thrived off secrecy. New members were inducted through a ceremony, swearing an oath to a hooded figure in a dark room, pledging absolute obedience. Here's the oath put together by the founding members. 
I, the Christian name and surname of the joining member, by entering into the organization, unification or death, do hereby swear by the sun which shineth upon me, by the earth which feedeth me, by God, by the blood of my forefathers, by my honor and by my life, that from this moment onward until my death, I shall faithfully serve the task of this organization, and that I shall at all times be prepared to bear forth any sacrifice. I further swear by God, by my honor and by my life, that I shall unconditionally carry into effect all its orders and commands. I further swear by my God, by my honor and by my life, that I shall keep within myself all the secrets of this organization and carry them with me into my grave. May God and my comrades in this organization be my judges if at any time I should wittingly fail or break this oath. And I'm going to wrap this episode up right here. I know some of you may be saying, let's get to the battles, but please bear with me. We still have one more episode to get through before the war kicks off. And the next episode contains the most important event which led to the outbreak. I'm hoping all of you find this to be entertaining and interesting at the same time. And most of all, I hope you are starting to see how everything is linked together. The Russians had an influence in Serbia going back to the assassination of King Alexander. Austria made a move to expand the empire by annexing Bosnia and Herzegovina. The Black Hand's founding members have been linked to Russia since 1903 and are only becoming stronger. France, a close ally of Russia, now has financial ties with Serbia, and it's only going to get a lot more messy. I want to thank everyone for listening to episode one. Please like and share Over the Top, a great war podcast on Instagram and Facebook and your podcast platform of choice. I'll be posting the release date of episode two very soon. You can email the show at ottgwpodcast at gmail.com. If there's a platform you'd like to see the show on, please shoot me an email and I'll do my best to make it happen. Take care, everyone. Bye.